Welcome back to the not-quite-penultimate episode of the Die Hard Minute, where each and every day for the past 26 weeks, you've been listening to 13 groups of podcasters in the Movies by Minutes genre talk about one of the greatest Christmas adventure movies ever made, the 1988 John McTiernan-directed feature, Die Hard. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane, of the Rocketeer Minute. And I'm Hal Bryan, also of the Rocketeer Minute. So, Jim, if this is almost the penultimate, is this like the penultimate, penultimate, penultimate episode? Or I, I, well, I don't know how I don't know how we count yeah. that. We're in we're in the, we're in Wednesday world. It's it's hump day. It's the middle of the week. It's you know things to come. Lots of lots of good things to come. Right. Uh, we haven't heard it yet, so we'll, we'll we'll find out what it is when we when we get to that bridge. <laughs> that's true. We uh, have not heard it yet. I I've been hearing it in my head all day. I don't know. That's I, <laughs> that's just that's just my uh, my approach to the craft. Okay, is I yes. I, I play the entire future episode in my head so that uh, once we get to it, it just sounds easy and natural. It's yeah. It's like uh, Hitchcock said that he never liked directing movies because he'd already seen it all in the storyboard. So we're <laughs> we're at that stage. But yeah, definitely good times coming ahead. Even though this, if if anything, this the not penultimate part of this is that this is the last time we're going to see any of the actors in in any scene. Wow, so we're looking true. at uh, dear old Holly and John McClane now and forever um, sitting in the back of a busted up limo. Driving away from a crime scene, (laughs) (laughs) Scott Free is the best way to describe this. They're uh, they're off with Argyle. Apparently, they want to kiss in front of a giant five hundred watt bulb that's about three feet from their faces. (laughs) So where would that? So that bulb would be? Is that in the front seat or down in the floorboards, like behind? I think I think it would be on the floorboards, and there is probably someone there inside the car with them, uh, (laughs) just just making sure that it's aimed the right way. Probably you know assistant cinematographer sitting there and saying, "Mm, "That's about right," and talking to somebody on a walkie-talkie. You know, this is all filmed what they called MOS, which is uh, Cats and Jammer Kids English for Myth Out Sound. Ah, interesting. A lot of a lot of uh, German, uh, you know, German uh, directors and things moved to Hollywood. And uh, that's that's what they said. This, the scene will be without sound, and so that became MOS. The uh, the, the it, it will say as a as a camera direction uh, that whether the scene is shot MOS or not. You don't need an audio crew here, and uh, we get to watch uh, you know them kiss that beautiful rim shot. There's a, a classic cinema is that you have three different types of lighting. You have a key light, which is you know, shows you uh, features. Uh, fill light, which uh, diminishes shadows, and then the uh, backlight, which uh, brings it, it separates the foreground characters from the background. So here we don't have a key light or a fill light; we just have the uh, the backlight. Uh, but it's a nice effect, very uh, very romantic for you know <laughs> if, if you want to kiss somebody in a mound of uh, carnage. That's that's well, the way to do it's it. It's funny too because as soon as you start thinking about the fact that there is a guy on the floor in front of them holding the light, that's the only possible place that makes sense for this light to be coming from. But why, why doesn't it stand out? Uh, And I I think it's just because we, you know, our minds just say, well, they're lit somehow. And, and otherwise, of course we wouldn't see them at all, but it's, as soon as you think, uh, think about, stop and think about where this light must be. It just makes no sense. There would, there would be any light from that direction whatsoever. Where's the boiling thing? Uh, it is. It's, it's just the, terrible. Yeah. It's the worst. It's really funny. Uh, right when we cut away from the the shot across the the trunk of the car, um, to that uh, shot of Argyle closing the door and getting ready to drive away, there's a light in the uh, shining through the rear window of the limo. And for just an instant, I thought, well, is that that's not part of the light that was inside? But then you see, it's actually just one of the lights at the base of the building, and we're seeing it through both sets of windows. Yeah. Yeah. 
that nice uh, 80s style cell phone uh, antenna stuck on the uh, on the back window. Oh, yes. Excellent. Back when back when cell phones needed yes. antennas and they had to be wired <laughs> into the car unless you were yeah. Zach Morris, of course. But yeah. oh, well, that was a, a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, a gorgeous, gorgeous scene there as they drive away from that beautiful set full of uh, rubble. And uh, <laughs> yes. into the into the, the the Los Angeles skyline. I, I love I love these large scenes. They're hard to they're hard to light. They're hard to uh, frame. Interesting thing about all the rubble in the foreground is you're probably only the, the rubble is not four sided. Um, one of these uh, one of the uh, you know soul crushing moments that that I had seeing movie movie magic in the flesh is uh, when I was a kid, they were filming uh, the end of the uh, uh, the movie King Kong. Not the, not the original, but the, uh, the Dino De Laurentiis masterpiece. Uh, and moving the, uh, the, the locale from the Empire State Building to the World Trade Center Plaza. And uh, back in the, about 76, I think it was, they, they were filming this, and uh, uh, dear old Jessica Lang was saying goodbye to, to poor Kong. And uh, they built this gigantic scene in between the two towers, this beautiful set. And there was, you know, lots of lots of uh, rubble and torn up uh, sidewalk. Of course, it wasn't torn up sidewalk. It was props sitting on top of the regular sidewalk and uh, a big uh, mohair uh, Kong. And I thought, wow, you know, and from one angle, it looked amazing. (laughs) But when you went around the back, it was hollowed out. It was like a bad taxidermy thing. And uh, even even the rubble only had one side to it. So you only get we you know, you pay you get what you pay for, but you only need to pay for the one side that's facing the camera. And it was I, I see this rubble that's in the uh, the left foreground there as we're as we're you know panning through it. And that probably only has rubble on one side. Because And who knows, it may have been sitting in a warehouse for years and we you know somebody someday is going to look at a pattern of something like that and memorize it and say, do we ever see this again? Or do we just sort of slap it together on an as needed basis? Yeah, it might've been a star in Die Hard's but, two and three, who knows, you know, it's just, it, it could be, it's, uh, it could be. And uh, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to really look into doing the, uh, the rubble minute at yeah. some point. I was trying to figure yeah. out if, is that, you know, if, if we'll do a callback to the Rocketeer, is that the same ambulance company that, uh, uh, we had in the Rocketeer. I remember there is a uh, there's an ambulance service that uh, right there is there one out of L.A. But uh, they do have a specific logo on the door. Obviously, the the look would have changed drastically in the 50 years between the two films. But um, do we see any logos on this other than just ambulance and emergency medical service? Yeah, I mean, we just see. Yeah, I, it's I pretty see, generic. Yeah, this might just be move, you know just a general one that uh, Fox owned a an ambulance and said here put it on the right. on the set. The the fire equipment is usually rented from uh, LAFD. As far as I know, they they have a a deal with a lot of uh, a lot of movie companies that uh, the Los Angeles fire uh, Los Angeles County will rent out their equipment if it's not you know needed. I think uh, the most famous one being Universal Universal Studios actually paid for upgrades to uh, their engine and Squad Fifty One, oh, wow. which became the stars of uh, Emergency. And when the when the series ended, the the, the equipment uh, continued on with with the actual uh, uh, engine company fifty one. That's amazing. When I uh, was um, in training to be an instructor for uh, first aid and CPR and stuff as part of the EMT training, I did. The uh, there were a few of us then that were that were just old enough to remember emergency and to talk about the old Johnny Gage chest crush. Um, 
where basically if anybody's really hurt for any reason at all, you just beat their sternum as hard as you can a few times and it seems to do the <laughs> trick. And uh, it, was, it was a habit that people above a certain age kind of had to unlearn. But, you know, the, uh, oh, well, oh, no, as I said, that, is, that was the thing to do. And there's so much, there's so much wrong. I, I have uh, friends who are you know EMTs and things like that, and they'll watch old episodes of emergencies. Yeah. Like, oh, that's not going to do anything. That's just going to make things exactly. worse. And- but on the other hand, it you know it, it brought attention to the idea of paramedics and and things, which is sort of sort of a new concept back then. Um, very quickly, back uh, a few lifetimes ago, when I was in my law enforcement days, and then also working in, in emergency communications. One of the fire departments a couple of towns away that was under our dispatch umbrella was uh, the city of Roslyn uh, in Washington State. And Roslyn um, is known on screen as uh, uh, Sicily, Alaska in Northern Exposure. So if you remember uh, Northern Exposure, if anybody remembers that show, you would see Roslyn's Cafe where they would just add uh, an apostrophe S to that when they were shooting because otherwise that sign is the same and now it's it's the Roslyn cafe but in the film or in the tv series it was Roslyn's cafe but anyway they were and i i think i think it also it also worked in as part of the script that the whoever painted the mural had gotten it wrong and one of the characters said they actually had to get up on a ladder and change the thing because they left out oh yeah i do remember something along those lines but there was uh just what made me think of it was the fact that the production company you know, as a thank you to the the citizens of this uh, this cute little town, bought them a new fire engine for their fire department, uh, just as a oh. just as a gift. I don't recall if it was ever used uh, on screen in the series or not. But uh, anyway, and that same uh, uh, by way of trivia, that same wall that uh, has the Roslyn Cafe on it um, is covered with uh, with graffiti and uh, fascist propaganda posters in the pilot episode for Amazon's The Man in the High Castle. A bunch of it was. Uh, up there in wow. Roslyn and uh, and then some other stuff in Seattle. And then uh, for the actual production of the series, they moved on to Vancouver. I will have to inform my wife of this because she was at the time a Musketeer, I think was the name of the fan club for the, uh, uh, for oh, Northern excellent. Exposure. And uh, she, she actually, when, uh, when we, uh, she, she was driving up to visit our uh, son and daughter-in-law in Oregon and actually made a side trip by herself to uh, Roslyn oh, just okay. to see the town and the brick building and, and all that. And she said, it's, it's one time very heartening to see it. And then very sad because apparently um, the, there's a radio station that's part of the show and it was kind of left as it was. And over 20 years, all the records had warped and everything was kind of dusty, but they they left it as it was. So it's just kind of. I was just going to say, before we wrap up this particular complete and total reign of tangent um, that I saw in my head earlier as part of my prep, Jim, um, uh, just, Oh, maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes down the road from Roslyn, of course, is North Bend, Washington, which uh, uh, still has uh, a lot of Twin Peaks sort of detritus. In fact, they they even went back and uh, to the Twin Peaks Cafe out there and revamped it a bit when they shot uh, the latest sort of, not reboot, but sort of follow up of the series. Well, uh, a lot of movie making along that corridor. Yeah, the Northwest Hollywood, that's what that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I, getting back on the uh, emergency vehicles and things like that and using them in, uh, in movies, uh, I was remembering the uh, NBC show uh, Car 54, Where Are You? Oh, sure. Which was um, 1961. Nat Haken had uh, had created it. They would film it in New York and actually did it on location. They were, doing, they were shooting all over um, Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx. 
And uh, the New York City Police Department, MHPD, was very worried about them using an actual vehicle that looked like a, uh, a patrol car. And at the time, uh, New York City patrol cars were painted uh, green and uh, white, green, black, and white. And the way they had, this was filmed in black and white. So what they what they did was they uh, they painted the the car 54. They painted it red and white so that it wouldn't be confused as an actual police car. But on black and white film, it looked just like every other uh, police car that was out there uh, for purposes of the show. Okay. I, I had never heard that. I, I, you've seen, seen one or two color pictures of, of sets of things. I want to say it was probably I Love Lucy um, when you see the sets and the makeup and – you know, what we know as black and white TV, just the sometimes actually very garish and very bizarre colors that uh, that didn't matter because we were they were shooting in black and white or it was going to be broadcast in black and white. But I never heard that about uh, Car 54. That was Fred Gwynn, right? Herman Munster? Yeah, Fred Gwynn, right. Yeah, his follow his follow up would have been the, the Munsters, which, yes, I agree that if you see color pictures of the Munsters when you're used to a black and white world, it's very disturbing. And Fred, Fred Gwynn, of course, his side, one of his sidekicks in there besides Joey Ross was uh, as uh, Schultze was uh, uh, Al Lewis, oh, who later played oh, his sure, father. Grandpa, Grandpa Munster, oh. I forgot about that. Yeah. And boy, that uh, that theme song. I, I don't really ever remember watching Car 54, but I but I grew up hearing the theme song, you know, in reruns and things. And that one little line about, you know, everything's so stressful, but Khrushchev's do it idle wild. I, I don't know why it's stuck with me now. Of course, yeah. now JFK, but the idea that, uh, you know, the cops are going to be busy because traffic and everything else, we got to presumably have to get there and and uh, bring in the original shoe banger himself, Nikita Khrushchev. Yeah, it, it was a it was an amazing show. I mean, it's very uh if you like the uh, if 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 you like the monsters and you've never seen Car Fifty Four, go back somehow. I'm sure it's on Nickelodeon or one of, Nick at Night, one of those you know retro TV stations. Catch a couple episodes of Car Fifty Four, but because it is very funny, Fred uh, Fred Gwynn playing uh, Francis Muldoon is. Uh, He's a little bit dopier than Herman Munster, but the, the <laughs> characterizations are, are all there. Seeing uh, his his boss, um, uh, his name escapes me now, but uh, his boss later played uh, a guy who was uh, uh, he, he 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 came he came back on the Munsters and and played a guy who was using witchcraft to make uh, uh, different advertising uh, products work better. Oh no, kidding! So, and you're yeah, sure that yeah, wasn't so, Darren Stevens from Bewitched? Because come no, on, no, that no. was every episode of Bewitched, <laughs> of either using the witchcraft or trying not to use the witchcraft. Now looking up through the magic of uh, Wikipedia, I noticed Paul Reed was the name of the guy. But you, if you watch, uh, if you watch a couple of episodes, you'll see uh, veterans of Car Fifty Four turning up on uh, on the monsters. And unfortunately, you know, all those references are lost on us now because well, we're just you know, it, it was a long time ago, and we don't. Right. <laughs> Don't always get, oh, yeah, this guy was in the other show. Oh, I get it now. You know what else happened so, a long time ago, Jim? This movie. Well, this movie or us yeah. actually talking about the movie at hand. Yeah, that's Remember, that is true. We started true. talking about die something. Well, what, but anyway. We've, we've, been, we've, been talking, we've been talking about the visual parts, but there's also you know an audio part here. Of course, we are trying to tie it back to the Christmas aspect. Right. It's a very weak Christmas aspect. And we're hearing, uh, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And um, I, be I believe my co-host, Hal, has a report on, <laughs> on this song and the man who's singing. That's right, Jim. This just in. Uh, actually, I would hardly say it's a report. Um, interestingly, you know, let it snow. Written in 1945, a what's become a quintessential Christmas song. But, you know, there's nothing about Christmas in it, in the lyrics. 
It's just it's just hmm. a general wintertime uh, wintertime song. Um, salute to weather. It's a, it's a salute to weather. Yes, uh, but um, the the singer in this case, I guess I'm not ashamed to admit, but I I, I should admit that uh, I've never paid close attention to it, and I always just thought it's, it it was Dean Martin. It just it's got a little bit of Dean Martin to it. But then as soon as you stop and listen, it does it's not it doesn't have nearly that same sort of jazzy boozy swing of, of Dean Martin, but that's just who the voice reminded me of. It's actually a guy named Vaughn Monroe. He uh, was born in 1911, lived until uh, the early 70s, about 1973. And uh, um, a lot of nicknames about him and his voice. My favorite was uh, uh, the voice with hair on its chest. So and if that doesn't make you sort of sit up <laughs> straight and, yeah. and say, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You just do with that what uh, do with wow. that whatever you will. But, uh, <laughs> so I would just yeah, other people would be known as the shaved Vaughn Monroe. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, the wow. slightly less her suit Vaughn Monroe, <laughs> if you will. That's uh, that's what my choir teacher called me in high school. Um, uh. And then I took my shirt off, <laughs> showed him. Um, so uh, uh, Vaughn had a prolific singing career, did a little bit of acting, a few things in movies, uh, had his own variety show on CBS because who didn't uh, in the from the you know sort of 50s and 60s. Of special interest to me being the airplane nerd is that uh, he was also a, a very avid pilot and he had a Lockheed uh, 12A Electra wow. Jr., beautiful twin engine airplane, um, only about 130 of them built. And as of a couple of years ago, there were only eight of them left flying in the world. And I, I know that number very well because we had all eight of them here at our big fly-in in Oshkosh. And it was, so did you have a – you had the Vaughn Monroe edition well, there. It must have if, been. Yeah, if it survived, it was uh, – and if it's not one of the – a couple in museums. And I, I wasn't able to dig up as of yet, you know, which one he owned. And you never know. But uh, – Certainly, if it survived and and flying, it was uh, it was right here in our backyard. These are beautiful, beautiful, sleek Art Deco uh, twin engine airplanes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, maybe best known as sort of the little brother to the Lockheed Ten uh, Electra that uh, uh, Amelia Earhart was uh, using in her attempt to fly around the world. But uh, I thought that was pretty neat that he, uh, he was a pilot and he flew to a lot of his own tour dates. And he also wrote a couple of, or at least a few books. There was one in a series which I would swear I remember reading in the library as a kid. Now I've got to dig it up and see if it's familiar. But I did an airplane called The Adventures of Mr. Excuse me, did a book called The Adventures of Mr. Putt Putt, which has a, um, a little tail dragger, open cockpit uh, monoplane or midwing monoplane on the cover with a very Thomas the Tank Engine style face. And uh, so he, hmm. Vaughn, wrote this with somebody named Captain Lewis J. Smith. Two of them worked together. Uh, and wrote a story about uh, the secrets of the pilot and uh, everything you need to know about airplanes and flying. This, this was uh, 1949, so about three years after he would have been recording uh, Let It Snow. Uh, he was the first guy to record uh, Let It Snow as wow. well. That was his, it, his uh, of all the people that have covered it over the you know intervening 70 years, he was out there first. Quite a renaissance man, though. I mean, he's got, right. you know, he's got hit songs. He's got... Uh... He writes books, and he's also yeah. a master And he's in, of, uh, in movies, TV shows, Amazing. and uh, two stars on the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame. And I'd, I'd love to research that and see how many people can say they have more than one. But he has one for recording yeah. and one for his work in radio. So 
my only connection with Vaughn Monroe is I remember his name constantly when you'd go to garage sales and look through somebody's oh, pile sure. of always vinyl. Be, yeah, be a Vaughn Monroe <laughs> like numerous too. Um, looking back at my notes, I, I've got to throw out one other nickname. I mean, nothing is better than the voice with hair on its chest. But uh, how about old leather tonsils? Oof. So that's uh, if that's not a compliment, Jim. I don't know yeah, what I mean, is. That's, you know, I, he, he he should have been in every western ever made. He should be singing the title exactly. song. Good heavens! He was he was on an episode of Bonanza, wow. and uh, you know, movie wise, like I said, I think he just did two or three uh, two or three movie things, and they they seemed to want him to uh, uh, to to go after it, but he didn't uh, wasn't all that interested. Too busy. He was him. in a movie called The Toughest Man in Arizona, which perhaps just starred his leather tonsils. Yes. I don't know, but he, uh, he fought the Grand Canyon in one. I, I, yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I now I have to, I, you know, the Vaughn Monroe minute is wide open there. Just, it is. That seemed to be taken over. Uh, yes, it's, uh, uh, it's calling to us. Yeah, but he, you know, managed to get his name in the credits. And, and speaking of the credits, as here, to segue, we, uh, we are getting to the credits right. here as we watch, uh, which everything rolls up and we're watching the, the cast list coming up. Interesting that they have it split not by uh, who gets top billing, but actually first with the good yeah. guys and then the bad guys and then everybody well, you know, else. Very quickly, as this as the credits come up, I love that you've got the two uh, the two firefighters on the you know at the on the lift. There's sort of the big you know cherry picker kind of uh, fire thing. Yeah, just moving perfectly out of the way to make room for the credits. And it's just it's <laughs> something is really sort of nice and tidy about that. And and presumably that was sort of planned and laid out that way that you would that for this ending shot you would have these emergency personnel sort of in the middle but as the limo's driving away they're moving out of frame everything's sort of giving you this sense of departure but uh that was a very nice touch yeah i'm just and you know try not to, not to think too hard as to why you'd have two guys in a bucket truck right uh just kind of hanging out in the middle next to a 30-story building that isn't burning at the second floor yeah, exactly so. they are getting a slightly higher view of the debris field I think is all it is. Yeah, uh, they're just you know like they're thirty feet higher than right exactly. Yeah, they're thirty feet higher than everybody else except all of the people who are undoubtedly scouring the building at this point. Uh, it's also oh. interesting too. You talk about the credits; you split sort of good guys, bad guys. We see you know good guys first with no heading, and then and then right below that just terrorists. How interesting it was because and I'm sure that that this has been sort of covered ad nauseum, but how they early drafts of the script. And then I, I believe, and you could correct me on this, but the book that it was based on, uh, they really were terrorists. And it was, uh, uh, was it McTiernan who wanted to change them to robbers sort of posing as terrorists? Yeah, they turned it into a caper film. There was a right. lot of different, you know, it wasn't, Nakatomi was, is a general engineering firm and it used to be um, Klaxon Oil, I think was the one from the book and it was an oil company. Uh, that's, yeah, Klaxon. That's a very real sounding corporation. And uh, his, it wasn't his wife, it was his daughter and his daughter was going out with uh, Ellis and uh, he was, yeah, McLean was there to, this is back in the Frank Sinatra right. days of when, you know, this had originally come from the detective and uh, he was there trying to, uh, Ellis was the bad guy and it, they were trying to bring the terrorists were trying to bring down Klaxon oil and it was just all very, uh, then, then the building caught fire and they were, they were trapped trying to get out of the thing. I, I, I read, uh, I read this a while back just for purposes of, the, of doing this show. It's, it was an interesting book, but uh, the movie definitely they've McTiernan pointed it in the right direction, turning this into a, um, a combination of towering Inferno and a caper film. 
is really what makes uh, to me that's what makes it uh, so strong so powerful and just it, it is definitely something that you would stay and watch the credits simply because this is you know just a fascinating group of people that works absolutely on and it was um, neat to see yeah. the uh or interesting to me i guess rather to to think about because certainly in our lifetime we've seen we've seen movies kind of go back and forth as to whether they've got uh, some opening credits or no opening credits, full closing credits, um, credits now, of course, in the Marvel universe, post credit scenes, there's a mid credit scene and a post credit scene. Um, but I've always been one to, to stay through the credits and just, just look at the names and just pay, you know, a, a little bit of respect. Um, but uh, it, certainly in our, I would guess probably our early childhood, it was still not uncommon to not have the entire cast and crew listed in a film. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, most of the, the earlier ones when you're watching, let's say in the fifties um, and sixties and stuff, everything would be up front simply because the unions that they belong to at the time, it would be screen actors, guild directors, guild um, all of all these different uh, ones fought to get oh. credits up on the screen. And uh the, the director's guild, especially wanted the name, the director of the movie would be the final opening credit just to show who did this. And that was the director record guild fought hard for that. And, uh, to go against it was very unusual. One of the first movies to break that was, uh, the original star Wars, uh, George Lucas didn't want his name at the beginning. Didn't want to have anything, uh, taking people out of the storyline. So he actually, uh, quit the directors the dga the directors guild uh just so that he could have uh the movie shown the way he wanted to with credits at the end and nothing to uh, nothing to to break that uh that suspension of disbelief at the beginning and 40 years later he sold the franchise for four billion dollars so i i <laughs> yeah. get the feeling that Good yeah that, that george was on the right track and now, now we're into a whole situation where the you know we've we've lost the opening credits, except maybe a title card saying what the, what the right. name of the movie was. But now we're we're getting into the part where the credits themselves are entertainment. We have uh, end credits as titles as the as the fact, and we we stay and watch it, most notably in the uh, the Marvel movies, but a lot of other movies have this, where you have an entire rather. Uh, overdone or just right done production just to show credits of a movie and Absolutely. be entertained by it. Um, you know, I'll never forget uh, seeing a Ferris Bueller's day off in the theater for the first time. And then suddenly he's, <laughs> he's back on the screen. He's walking back. He's telling me to leave. And I said, wait a minute, you can't talk to me yes. out of the audience. <laughs> What's happening here. This is incredible. This is, you know, blowing my mind and changing my life. And then of course, um, you know, uh, like, the Python films and their ridiculous extra, extra job titles and, and arcane references to things are just absolutely fantastic. If you've, if you've got an attention to detail, it's, it's wonderful when that attention is rewarded with something. Oh yeah. I mean, the idea in uh, back to the future two, that they actually stuck the trailer to back to the future three yes. in the end credits, just by the <laughs> way, coming up next year, you can watch this one. So, uh, very, you know, it, it's turned into a marketing thing. It's also turned into something that people right. have come to expect. I mean, only, only people who have, you know, kids to put to bed or something at night don't stay for all the Marvel credits. And, uh, you know, they're worthwhile right up to the very end. And, uh, you know, but here we get to just see a nice, a nice listing of just about all the cast. Surprising that Paul, Paul Gleason gets four, fourth billing. 
uh, in the end credits. Um, but he's just, you know, hot off uh, breakfast club. Oh, sure. And, uh, he's a, he was a big name at the time. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting seeing all these people that, that go by some have, you know, had great careers, some are whatever happened to <laughs> right. uh, an intrigue, an intriguing moment. So anyway, I think that's, that's about all we can say about this particular minute. Um, but we have some, uh, we have some cool stuff coming up tomorrow with some intriguing guests. Absolutely. More than, more than just our two lowly voices, uh, leather, leather tonsil, though they may be. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to call in sick tomorrow at work with that. I can't make yeah. it. I got the leather tonsils. <laughs> Take some kiwi, lie down with a stiff, yeah. brush, stiff bristle brush. And I'm hoping it doesn't candy. spread and become jerky lips. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, dear. Uh, wow. Well, we will we will return uh, tomorrow for the final uh, two. We'll, we'll we'll return tomorrow for uh, for episode one of the final two episodes. So tomorrow will truly be the penultimate episode. Yeah, tomorrow will be the real penultimate. And this is just the penultimate penultimate. This is penultimate episode Eve. Yes. <laughs> so go out and celebrate, but responsibly. <laughs> Go watch some credits. Uh, if you'd like to follow us, uh, there are many other people, uh, very, very many talented people who have made these uh, previous 127 other uh, episodes that you should be listening to. Go back to our great big site, diehardminute.com. Go listen to all of those before tomorrow. So you've got uh, 127 minutes at a hit. Well, you won't be able to make it, but try to get through as many as you can. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, of course, at diehardminute. Find us at uh, diehard with a... Lim, uh, die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo out on Facebook. Uh, and of course, uh, we've got more to we've got more to come. So join us here tomorrow on the Die Hard Minute and we'll we'll find out some more credits and, uh, and some gen- generic general stuff with some interesting guests. So we'll see you here tomorrow. Uh, and until then, yippee kaye. Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on channel five.